Hello and welcome to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians made possible by Aftercare Australasia and our new sponsorship partners, Australian Unity. I'm Paula Dunn and joining me today is Brendan Telfer. Welcome, Brendan. Hello, Paula. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Good to be back. So, what's happening on the program today? Well, we've got a very busy program today, um, Paula. We've got uh, Professor Joseph Ibrahim from Monash University. He's talking about injury and, in particular, the impact it's having on aged care residents. The figures are quite alarming. And we're also going to be speaking to the positive ageing advocates and author, Marcus Riley. He's just published a new book. It is called Blooming. And Richard Grellman, as well, spokesperson for Dementia Momentum, has just organised a huge surfing carnival up in Sydney. They've raised about $152,000, which goes to the $8 million they've raised already trying to fight and battle this demon that we call dementia. Mm, That's amazing, isn't it? He's done a fantastic Fantastic. job, but there's also a very personal story that uh, we want to speak to Richard about in that one. It's very moving as well. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear that. So, but first, our regular visitor, Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia. G'day. Welcome, Warren. G'day, Paula. How are G'day, you? G'day, Brendan. Lovely Warren, to be here. Lovely to see you again, Warren. Welcome back to the Bendigo Bank studio, <laughs> the Aftercare Australasia studio. No, yeah. it's all good. <laughs> good to see you. So what are we talking about today, Warren? Well, actually, uh, there was a couple of things I was hoping to discuss, but um, with your lead in there, it's just prompted me to, I suppose, make an observation. Um, Brendan, just regarding the rate of injury in, in nursing homes, and uh, uh, one of the things that there's been a little bit of research done into is how, um, unfortunately, one of the unintended consequences of people being in these very safe, sort of cocooned environments in nursing homes is there's a tendency for them not to move about enough and not mm-hmm. to actually use and maintain this, the independent living skills that they already have and that they practice regularly when they're at home simply because they have to, 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 mm. to get on and get about. Yes. And if, if uh, and I'm saying this happens in all nursing homes, uh, all aged care facilities, but, um, but in the ones that aren't being well run, they, there isn't enough to stimulate people and they end up leading an extraordinarily sedentary life. And just mm. like the rest of us, it's, it's, it's use it or lose it. Mm. And so you can find, we, we often get these reports from families who use um, residential respite as a break for a couple of weeks, yeah. that they'll come back and they'll find that their, their, you know, their family member who's gone and had the stay is struggling to do some things initially when they first get home. And mm. they, 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 you know, can be regained. I'm certainly not saying to mm. people don't use residential respite. It has mm. an important role to play. Mm-hmm. But it is about asking those questions before you use it. They around, need well, to be kept you know, What is there for them to yeah. do? What, what activities do you have? Yes. Are they things that your, you know, family members are interested in doing? And just make sure that that's in place because mm-hmm. it's, it's very much is, as I said, you use it or lose it. Yes. Um, and so sometimes it can be, there just isn't enough going on and there's too much being done for the person. Yes. Yeah. And it, it can... Well, Warren, we should have you on when we speak to Professor uh, Ibrahim about because he's just done all the research on this for Monash University. It's really quite alarming. that The statistics are quite incredible, actually. The number of people that are falling over, and particularly the oldies as well. Fractures, just terrifying. Well, the other thing that's, uh, that's a factor in that is uh, sometimes people have, the, in their own mindset, they will, even with the best of intentions from the residential staff encouraging people to be active, they'll kind of be telling themselves, this is the, the, the older person, 
will be telling themselves, oh, well, I'm old now and, I, and I've got to a point where I'm in the nursing home, so I should stop doing these mm. things. And uh, there was a very interesting um, study done, I think, th- I think through the BBC a few years back, I can't remember the name of the program now, where they, they got people that were quite sedentary and put them in this environment. You know, it was sort of like Big Brother for mm-hmm. older people. They put them in this in this environment where they had to be more active, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, these people regained all of these skills and mm-hmm. started running around yeah. and doing all sorts of things yeah. they hadn't done for five or ten years. Yes. It was quite interesting, and yeah. that was all in their minds. Yeah, of course. So uh, you know, human human psychology is a very Muscles complex. Muscles have memory. Thing. You know? Yes, yes, yes. We need yes. to remember that. Very, very interesting. Anyway, we'll yeah. be speaking with Professor Ibrahim a little bit later on. Would be yeah. good if you could stick around, but uh, yes. perhaps another time. We should third wheel in the stage yes absolutely <laughs> what do you reckon yeah definitely <laughs> so yeah so so the, what i was hoping to talk about i know we've talked about you know how do home care packages work in the in the broad term mm. um you know around funding and how much is available for services but if you're sort of looking around and and so this is for families and 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 um you know consumers or participants whatever they want to call themselves people older people um and and you find that it comes down to a bit of a toss up between you know one or two providers or two providers or more who their offering on paper looks very similar so you know their costings are very similar it looks as though you'll get a similar amount of you know actual services mm-hmm. um how do you how do you how do you choose which one you're going to go with mm-hmm. and that's where you need to ask a few more questions so one of the really basic questions you want to ask and and find out about is how do they deal with how do, how responsive is the organization to your inquiries um so uh, for example uh you, you'll often find or this is something we often get people expressing surprise at when they call and we say oh yeah no worries we'll give you a call back this afternoon let you know what's happening with that yeah. and they go really you're going to call back this afternoon and we're like yeah why would that be an issue and they're like oh well normally the other companies we deal with we'll ring them and they might get back to us a day later or they might get back to us some of them if they're booking ahead they, they might not hear for two weeks you know they might hear the day before the shift is due mm. to confirm it and where that leaves um, the the um, consumer is... Well, it leaves the consumer in a very vulnerable position. Yes. Surely. Yeah. I mean, how can yeah. you make life-changing decisions with about 24, 48 hours' notice? Mm-hmm. What's going on here? How do you make plans? How That's, do you? Yeah. And when you need to talk to someone, you need to be able to talk to them. Yeah, so there's sort of two parts to that. that some of these calls might just be around, you know, oh, look, can I, can I have a... a you know, an extra bit of time on this particular day or can I have the person come a bit earlier or, you know, it can be something quite yes. routine. Yeah. But again, so what our, the, our approach is we, we would actually get back to the person. It's pretty much the same day unless they're ringing at, you know, four in the afternoon, mm. in which case they'd hear, hear from us first thing the next morning, assuming it was for the next day, mm. the mm-hmm. support. If it was even more urgent than that, then they'd get a call from our after-hours service when the office closes after five. Mm-hmm. Um, so we that's how we sort of operate. And we used to think that was pretty much the industry standard and I'd like to think it was. But this is what this is one of the things that seems to have changed lately. Um, is that yeah, so, so again with case management as well um, and you might remember I've talked about yes. you know some of the traditional providers they've got um, they, they charge very heavily for case management and um, you, you're supposed to be getting quite a high standard of service service mm-hmm. um, but now when you ring this is what the families tell me they say well, well you ring and there's actually a message on their answering machine that says 
I'll call you back within 24 hours. And in some cases, it's I'll call you back within 48 hours. Boy. You know. Well, these, yeah. are, these are service providers. So is the market keeping them honest or is there somebody arbitrating this? And yeah, who are they accountable to? Well, uh, look. Is it the marketplace? I, I think it is the marketplace. And this is, this is what I guess we would be saying to people is if that's the response you're getting, and this is the message people <coughs> need to hear, if that's the response you're getting, First of all, you need to go back to your existing provider and say, that's not good enough for me. So, you know, because I think people are doing it because Australians are very polite. It's a bit of a truism that older Australians, you know, as a rule, tend to be be a bit Mm -hmm. politer. I think that'll change as the baby boomer generation comes through. (laughs) Yeah, yes, yay to us. But they're very accepting too. I mean, an elderly person, if they're told, you know, we'll get back to you in a, a week or so, they... Well, who are they to challenge? They, they might be disappointed, but mm. they may not feel strongly enough about it to actually want to make a complaint. Well, they might accept that that's the norm. That's how it's True. done across the board. True. And no, no different. I mean, if they're new to this... But we um, would we would be saying you need to ask those questions. You, yes. Sometimes it shouldn't be necessary to explain it to an existing provider because really if they've been in the business for a while, mm. they should just understand that that it leaves people hanging and people don't like being left hanging. Mm. They're anxious then potentially about, well, yeah. is it going to go ahead? Are they having trouble finding some, something, you know, someone to do the shift? Is, is there a problem? Is something going on? But um, as, a, as an industry that mm. you're in providing mm. care, are there, is there not criteria that no. you have to adhere to? You see, might, that's where I think it's Yeah, I see where you're going down. there. So yeah. this goes back to some of the earlier discussions we've had about mm. standards. Yes, absolutely. The standards are, as they're currently written, are very general and they don't specify or mandate what would be a reasonable level of service. Mm-hmm. The expectation, as you said, Brandon, is simply people will either give that feedback and see an improvement or if they really get fed up with it, they'll go, I'm going to take my package now that I control it and take it somewhere else. Mm. Um, and they need to know that they can do that if they want to. It's very easy. It's very easy. It's literally, you know, a couple of phone calls and a quick meeting and wait a couple of weeks and everything can go across. It's mm-hmm. literally no more complicated mm. than that. Yes. Um, well, it was a good topic to bring up today, Warren, because I think people do need to know. Um, well, there's an assumption that because they're all funded in the same way and they're all regulated, yep. um, that that everything's the same. Um, one of the other things that we're seeing is, is coming into the marketplace these days is you'll get um, some providers that will offer what seem on face value to be extraordinarily generous amounts of support that you can get from their package and they they'll often say oh you can you can self-manage this and again we're not saying that that's not the right way to go for some people Mm -hmm. there's been research in it done a few years ago in both the uk and australia that suggests that somewhere between five to ten percent of the population are really you know highly motivated to do that complete Mm -hmm. self-management um and so it would it suits that part of the the population um but they sell it in a little bit of a misleading way where they'll say, oh, look, you know, you can get twice as many hours of support in the home if you come with us. And what they don't show is that in the fine print, they're actually talking about you employing and managing your own team of carers, which, oh. you know, again, it, it suits wow. some people, 
But what yeah, we yeah, but it should be. That's not transparent. It should be no, more transparent it's, than that. It's well, there's I, I won't name names, but there's one company out there that really pushes this barrow. It's in all of their marketing, mm-hmm. and um, and obviously, as you do, you know, we they're a competitor of ours, so mm. we you know we study their offering and. Uh, um, see how it matches up against ours. And honestly, I'm pretty skilled on the computer and I had to look and look and look and look and look until I found one reference in it in the entire, you know, 20 web pages that, that hinted that you had to employ your own, your own That's carers. just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. thank goodness we have the age stage and thank, for, yes. thank goodness we have your support and your insight as well, Warren. Thank you. Oh, my yes, pleasure. Thank you, Warren. I appreciate it very much indeed. Warren Haynes is a regular visitor to the age stage and I think maybe in the future we might employ him as a third wheel in yeah, the program. Yeah, would be good. Wouldn't that, it? Yes. Um, Warren, thanks for coming by. My pleasure. After, Thanks, Warren. After Gary Australasia, of course, looking after us, and we thank them very much indeed, as we do our other friends at Australian Unity as well. This is the Age Stage on RWPFM. When we come back, Paul and I will be speaking with the positive ageing advocate, Marcus Riley, who's just published his new book. It's called Booming. Find out more in just a moment. And you're tuned to RPPFM, and this is The Age Stage, sponsored by Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. And we have a guest uh, to talk to now, Marcus Riley. And Marcus has um, just launched his book, uh, Booming, A Life-Changing Philosophy for Ageing Well. And he's a positive ageing advocate. So welcome, Marcus. Hi, Paula. Thanks very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about this uh, book you've written. I guess starting with the reason why I've written the book, mm-hmm. um, Paula, was to me we have this wonderful opportunity to, to age successfully and really for all of us to, to thrive in, in later life, and I do mean all of us, mm-hmm. but as a society we have a, a rather negative view of, of getting old and that's, I believe, really impacting on how people are ageing individually and our longevity, our increased longevity that our society is now going to enjoy um, is really one of humanity's greatest triumphs, but it's often spoken about, again, in this very sort of doom and gloom context that's always with a negative connotation. So I wanted to make people aware of our individual opportunity to, to boom, but also our collective responsibility to foster successful ageing for all. That sounds wonderful, and that's exactly what I've been, you know, spruiking for so long. Um, we do, we hear so much negativity about getting older, everything's breaking down, our joints are doing this or that or the other, and... It seems like our destiny is a nursing home, whatever. So this is fantastic that you've actually um, gone ahead and written this book, um, and I think it will help a lot of people. Thanks very much. Well, I certainly hope it, it does. And one of the key messages I did want to convey through the book was that successful ageing is self-defined, and that's going, to, that's going to look different from one person to the next, as it should. But because it is self-defined, it, it does mean that it is attainable for all people and Obviously, uh, each of us need to be taking into consideration our own circumstances and certainly our own um, priorities and, and who we are as an individual as we plan and, and embark on our pursuit of successful ageing. Um, but really, again, understanding that it is possible for each of us. Mm-hmm. So, so looking at ageing then, um, Marcus, obviously there, there are nevertheless some constraints on what we can do, you know, the prevalence of dementia, for instance, or creaky hips or joints. I mean, how do we overcome those as we, we embrace your philosophy? Absolutely, Brendan. It, it is being mindful of our own personal circumstances, but understanding that there are some key factors that influence our health and well-being and that we have 
a fair degree of control uh, over those factors. So some of the key factors are our genetics, our attitude, the environment and our lifestyle and uh, obviously our attitude, our approach to life, the environment that we place ourselves in and, and how we um, set up our, our physical environment and our lifestyle in terms of how we're looking after ourselves, our nutrition and our exercise, they're things that uh, we certainly can influence. And even our genetics, that often we think, oh, well, um, it's, it's expected that I'm going to inherit some sort of particular chronic condition or some sort of um, uh, physical aspect that, that's being passed down through my, through my uh, gene. Yet even being aware of those genetic factors is really important because then we can take some important measures to prevent the impact or, or at least mitigate the impact of some of those sorts of hereditary um, health circumstances. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's really important um, for people to know, I think, that even genetically there are theories out there that, you know, you can actually change your genetics. It is possible. So we don't have to accept that, oh, you know, mum had this, so I'm definitely, I'll, I'll get it. No, for sure. That's not always the case. That's such a good point, Paula, that we don't have to accept or we don't have to concede. Mm-hmm. And I think we have this um, sort of ingrained inevitability across our society about getting older or, in inverted commas, getting old, that um, we're going to have to accept a certain reduced way of living and, and really rein in our expectations of what's possible for us as we get older. Whereas, as you alluded to, that's not the case, that we're, we're learning more and more all the time that we can actually um, grow our mindset, we can retrain our brain, we can be Absolutely. taking various steps to um, to better foster our, our health and well-being. Yes. So which generation is this book pitched at, Marcus? The millennials? It's that all-age group. Um, obviously, the title Booming has a... A slight play on words in reference to the baby boomer generation. It does, and that's why I wanted to talk to you because <laughs> essentially that's a, that's a generation, and I feel very um, very warm and comfortable about that particular generation. But they've been pushing back against barriers for years, so they would be rich pickings for this sort of philosophy, wouldn't they? Redefining what old age is. Certainly, I think that the emerging generation of older people, if I can make that classification. Oh, that's a, very, very yeah, subtle. Very we, we, we love that, Marcus. Yeah, you're, you're a friend of the age stage yes, immediately. Continue the thought. We love it. Um, do have a, a greater propensity and openness to uh, avenues of, of maintaining well-being and engaging with certain whether it's services or activities that are going to be conducive to, to an improved lifestyle. And, and probably that... Um, greater inclination to resist or, or not accept certain inevitabilities. So I think it's an exciting uh, prospect of what this baby boomer generation will achieve you know, through their longevity and ideally really set a great example and, and a bit of a blueprint for the, the ensuing generations who can see what has been achieved by a generation that um, has has got older but has really prospered in that later life. Yes. And I understand you have five rules of, of healthy ageing. Marcus? Yes, yeah, so there's some key um, rules or, or uh, messages, if you like, um, Paula, around that. One of those is certainly um, an ongoing approach to life and saying yes. yes. And really that's about being open to new opportunities. We were just talking about learning new ways of doing things and not accepting inevitabilities. Um, and understanding that the, the impact 
or how significant the impact can be of, of even uh, taking a positive approach to uh, rather small things on a, on a day-to-day basis, that they start to really build this momentum as to how we are living our life, how we are approaching um, you know, our, our way to life. So that's certainly uh, first and foremost in terms of that, that approach and that, that attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, another key aspects around and maintaining that positivity about um, participating and, and maintaining that sense of purpose are, are crucial as well. So that's his second rule. The other one is um, be proactive. I guess it probably fits into the, the first two, doesn't it? Um, say yes, participate, be proactive. And, and the other one that I'm interested in as well, Marcus, is dodge the negative. Yes, I, like, I, I like, like that, that one. Yeah. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And that, uh, on a couple of different levels, uh, Brendan, in terms of dodging the negative, the, the first is that uh, in that casual ageism, that really negative stereotype view that society has of, of getting older, that we resist, resist the, the impact of that. Mm. Um, but also, even closer to home, the, you know, we, we can find that people around us have that negative view of, of getting older and um, sort of the, the conversations that people have with you and they almost start encouraging you to start slowing down and, and start mm-hmm. withdrawing and sometimes people have the best of intentions in, in, in those conversations yet the message they're actually giving off is one of, well, you know, it's time for you now to really you know, put the cue in the rack. So it's, it's avoiding those sort of negative influences yes. and then of course our own, our own voice and attitude as well that we need to make sure um, is maintaining a, in a positive sense. And that, that, of course, I guess is rule number five, which is pursue your passions. passions. Now, if you want a guide and Marcus's tips on, on what to do about healthy ageing, then you must read his book, Booming, and we're talking to Marcus Riley at the moment. Marcus, I've got a fantastic story to tell you, in fact. It's my uncle. He's, uh, I think he's about 94 now. He lives in the UK. He walks every day across the Weald of Kent, and he's just taken up Italian. Oh, how wonderful. Fantastic. And he's also and he's also in the local chamber orchestra as well. He plays a pretty mean violin. No, it's not the violin he's playing now. I think he's on to the glockenspiel or something like that. <laughs> because he hasn't got, he hasn't quite got the motor skills. He'll concede that, but he's not going to concede anything else. They do say that language yeah. to learn a language is really one of yeah, the well, best things you can do for well, your brain. He, he, he's doing Italian, and apparently he's starring. Fantastic! That's a great story. Well, story. What a great example! And, and Marcus, just very quickly before we uh, set you on your way, and congratulations. With the big book launch up in Sydney last week, with the lovely Lisa Wilkinson as well, who we're told was absolutely sensational at the launch. Um, you, of course, you you base these observations and this writing on a, a pretty substantial career in this area. That's right, Brendan. I've been involved with the area of aging since I was seventeen years old myself, and um, have had the, the great fortune uh, for the last couple of decades to to learn and, and be inspired from a, a range of people who have been aging successfully themselves, but, but at the same time too, perhaps observing why some other people haven't um, embraced life in, in that positive way and, and haven't uh, aged quite so successfully, uh, as well, of course, as gaining knowledge from uh, colleagues and others right around the world. So I feel really fortunate to be in the position I am today to hopefully share some of this knowledge that I've acquired over um, you know, 20 plus years now. Mm-hmm. Yes, you must have met some amazing people and some personalities. Yeah. Marcus Riley, where do we get hold of your book, Booming, A Life-Changing Philosophy for Aging Well? Booming is available online through sites such as Amazon.com and, and Booktopia, uh, as well as in your local bookstores. And if it's not there, please feel free to um, ask them to, to get it in and, and order it for you. And uh, I hope people enjoy the read and, and certainly derive some benefit in terms of how they view their, their later life. Well, I'm going to, it's a Christmas present, so I'm going to give myself that for Christmas. So how about that? 
fantastic. Great initiative, Paula. Thank you. Marcus Riley, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to speak to us today on the age stage and uh, good luck with the book and uh, here's to a healthy and very positive ageing. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Marcus. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more age stage on the other side of this. This is The Age Stage. I'm Paula Dunn and with me in the studio is Brendan Telfer. Oh, Paula, thank you very much indeed. Yes, The Age Stage, of course, brought to you each week by Aftercare Australasia and our new friends at Australian Unity. Well, we're just about to meet another guest on the program, Richard Grellman. He's on the line. He's spokesperson for Dementia Momentum, an initiative of the Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing. They've just put on a big surfing event, Paula. Yes, yes, Bondi, I understand they? that. Yeah, in, in aid of dementia, so indeed. which is fantastic. They've raised, yeah. raised a big money and also of course the staggering figures that we're going to discuss as well i mean 65 people over 65 now making up 20 percent of mm. the australian mm-hmm. population mm. and i believe we have richard on the line yes richard how are you today richard welcome and welcome to the age state richard um very interested to get you on the program last uh, week in sydney bondi beach uh, a an important event there where you raised a lot of money and also awareness about dementia. Yes, it was a terrific event and we're very pleased with the result. So how much did you raise in the end? Uh, the event at Bondi last week raised approaching $150,000. Inc- wow, that's wonderful. An incredible yeah. event. Yeah. You pitched it basically into the property market up in New South Wales, I believe. Yes, the Bondi event is very much uh, organised and populated by uh, the property industry. It's the eighth event that we've run in the Wipeout to Venture series. And the, um, the Bondi Beach event is property chaps and girls. Well, Richard, you are the ambassador for Wipeout Dementia, a surfing fundraiser, of course, which is also part of the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging, uh, affiliated with the University of New South Wales. This is very important work. The the stats, the figures, and the prevalence of dementia, particularly as the population gets older, pretty significant and probably very worrying. I agree, Brandon. I mean, we're seeing seeing a, a growing incidence of this illness and the costs for the community, probably. Because we're living longer, we're um, we're, we're healthier. Uh, there's better healthcare, so people are getting older. And of course, uh, dementia is very much something that uh, many people experience later in life. Not exclusively, of course, but can it can affect younger people as well? Yes, it's a terrible disease, Richard. And I understand your wife has advanced young onset Alzheimer's disease and is just 68 years of age. Yes, indeed. She uh, turned 68 last week, actually, and she uh, was diagnosed about nine years ago. Uh, She would have been presenting with, thinking back, she was presenting with symptoms for for a year or two before that, but we really didn't know what we were dealing with. So she's been living with the formal diagnosis for about nine years, I suppose, and uh, for approaching five years, she's been in full-time residential care. Right, and when she presented first, like back before she was actually diagnosed, what what sort of symptoms was she presenting with, or what do people present with? Well, obviously forgetfulness, but it was it was more subtle than that because it, it was um, a, a loss of confidence in social settings. So it, uh, if there was a group of people, she tended to tended to become a little less engaged and would withdraw mm-hmm. and not seem to be able to follow the conversation. Um, 
household chores. Uh, driving was becoming a problem. Uh, later on in the process, she actually lost her car once or twice in car parks. And it was about that time when, when we um, ultimately got the, uh, the diagnosis. Uh, she obviously stopped driving at that point. Mm-hmm. And we uh, went on from there. This would be terrifying for you uh, observing this, Richard, but also, I guess, for her as well, for Sue Ellen, it would have been a very, very difficult confrontation. Well, it, it was, and uh, she was very courageous and um, accepted it as her lot. She didn't resist the suggestion that she stop driving. She... Um, attitude that we were on notice to uh, live as much as we got our life as we could while she was well enough to do that. Mm. We just didn't know how long we had. So we uh, drew up our list of, of activities to do together and as a family and um, I guess we got about 18 months further on and had ticked off most of the things that were on our list mm-hmm. by which time it was just inappropriate for her to be living at home without the uh, the extra professional independent support that you can get if you uh, enter into a uh, you know a domestic uh, residential facility which uh, she did as I say really five years ago. Her condition promoted and provoked you to do something about dementia Richard? Well it did but my uh, uh, my involvement came about because her treating physician, Professor Henry Bradati, uh, is one of the co-founders of the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging. And uh, as we were leading his surgery uh, at that point where he said, there's nothing much more I can do for you, uh, um, I think you'll just have to uh, proceed and uh, you know do the best you can. Uh, coming, here, coming in here won't change the course of anything. Uh, on the way out, he said, would you like to give us a hand? And uh, he's been terrific with Sir Ellen and me and uh, has been very uh, helpful in, help, in helping us understand what we were confronting and the, uh, you know, the prognosis of this disease. And I felt like uh, I, I uh, was offered an opportunity to do something rather than uh, you know, to sit around and, and observe Sir Ellen as she declined. Mm-hmm. So it's been a good good thing for me to be involved in. And so how, what sort of coping mechanisms have you had in place for yourself, Richard? Uh, you know, as a carer, I guess you started as her carer. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot about people suffering from the disease, which is horrific, but it's the people that are around them that uh, often suffer. You, have you had counselling yourself or any sort of support? I, I did try counselling, um, it didn't seem to be my cup of tea. Uh, I didn't derive too much support. Uh, but, but it felt helpful to me from the couple of people I saw. But I've got a, a very good network of friends. I, uh, I'm reasonably active physically, and uh, I surf every morning or try to. And uh, so everyone knew the whole situation, and they. Uh, they clubbed around and, you know, made sure that I was okay. Children have been terrific. And, uh, and you know, you, you're really presented with a choice and you're in my position. You can either 
will get up and feel cross and unhappy about mm-hmm. what's happening or, or try to do something to help. Yes. And clearly, uh, no one benefits if you if you just throw your hands up and uh, feel unfairly treated by by life. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Henry Bernardi offered me the opportunity to do something positive. So, I'm grateful to him for that. So, that's been a therapy in itself for you. In itself, it yes. has been a therapy. Yeah. Tell, tell me, Richard, as you talk to the experts, and here we are early in the 21st century, where do you think the science on this is going? Are we going to be able to correct and intervene and medically treat this condition in the next decade, two, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm still qualified to know, but I have a higher regard for the people at Cheaper and uh, other researchers in this field. Um, we, medical science has developed so far on so many fronts. I'd find it inconceivable that we other people can't can't answer the, the key questions. You know, how do you get this? If you get it, um, is it treatable? And indeed, is it able to be cured? And importantly, are there modifying behaviours that you can adopt that reduce the likelihood or extinguish the uh, the, the probability of catching this disease yourself. So, mm. uh, my best information is that there's no clear, no clear solutions yet, and there's a lot of work being done. Being done, but um, victory has not been declared. Well, your contribution, of course, and the money that you're raising through events like you organised at Bondi the other day, helping, I'm sure, in some some aspect. But, I mean, the figures, Richard, are just staggering, aren't they? Um, total cost of dementia expected to be more than $36 billion. Well, that was $36 billion in 2015, so wow. it's, it's just exploding, isn't it? Mm. It really is, and when you're close to this disease, as I have reluctantly become, and you, I mean, in my in Sir Ellen's case, she is completely helpless. She um, has no language. She hasn't been able to walk for two years. Um, she has no fine motor skills, so someone needs to feed her at meal time. That's terrible. And, um, yeah. Every daily function from the first thing in the morning when you've got to uh, get dressed, etc., she needs one or two people to help her. Now, you can just imagine the costs of, of that support. Yes. Yeah. Multiply that by the number of people who have this disease, and uh, the real heavy cost is in the uh, the manpower needed to support people. Yes, um, and it really is necessary because I was determined to keep someone on the phone with me for as long as I possibly could. But you realise that at the end of the day, it's a it's a safety issue. I mean, you you, you don't have lifting machines, and mm. and you're not you're not independent. You know, you're. This is my life partner, my wife, and uh, very hard to um, to be all things when you're so emotionally involved. So, yes, very important to uh, to get independent professional support, but that obviously comes at a cost. Yes, and, and, and the figures, as Brendan said, are staggering. You know, 52% of permanent residents in Australian aged care facility <coughs> have dementia. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? It's staggering, it really is. Wow. So. And so I suppose of, uh, events like uh, surfers in the Wipeout Dementia event that you put on in Sydney, just doing your bit here, Richard, to try and, you know, spread the word that this is a significant condition. It's affecting many fantastic Australians. 
and we're going to have to do something about it or put it front and centre because at the moment I just don't think people do realise what an impact it is uh, imparting on society. Correct, and I guess that's the, um, the the two objectives we have with Life After Venture are to uh, create a forum where where that awareness raising can take place and people are, are able to understand that it's, it's real and uh, it needs to be dealt with. Um, researchers need to try and find out the answers and secondly, of course, the fundraising element of Wipe Out Dementia and um, the eight events now we're over, we're over a million dollars that's been raised in the, those that's, eight events. That's wonderful. Uh, yeah, wonderful. Well, going to a very good cause. Yes, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program today and talking about your own very private and personal experience. We really do appreciate that, Richard. Uh, my pleasure, Paula. Nice talking to you. Thank you very much thank indeed. You. Richard Grohman, who is spokesperson for the Dementia Momentum, an initiative of the Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Richard, thank you very much indeed. This is RPPFM and you're listening to The Age Stage. I'm Paula Dunn and my co-host today is Brendan Telfer. The extent of uh, unintentional injury, Brendan, uh, injury-related hospital admissions among aged care residents in Victoria has been revealed by Monash University Accident Research Centre. Indeed, Paula. And uh, we have on the line to discuss it is uh, Professor Joseph Ibrahim of Monash University, Health, Law and Ageing. Professor Ibrahim, uh, welcome to The Age Stage. Uh, thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Paula. And so, Professor, tell us a little bit about your work in this area. So I should clarify that the work's been done um, by the Accident Research Centre. Uh, the team that I work with looks predominantly at death and premature um, death-related uh, injuries. The team at the Accident Research Centre have looked at um, what they've called unintentional injury-related hospital admissions, so people that... Um, have required a transfer from a residential aged care facility to hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and not surprisingly, they've all, Yamanish has found that the majority of injury related hospitalisation are related to falls. And there's also a significant um, number that are due to choking. Well, you've do, you've done some research, as you were saying, Joseph, on this, and really the numbers are pretty staggering, aren't they? What almost fifteen thousand admissions in the last ten years or so? Yes, so so it is a, a lot of admissions. What we do know as people age is the likelihood of falls increases, and so the the pattern of injury um, fits with what we expected. The the numbers are larger than um, we anticipated. Uh, but it's really what you've got to remember is the older people that are requiring um, residential aged care tend to be frailer with more disability and other diseases, which increases the likelihood of falls. I think what worries us is um, the nature of injury following the falls, and typically most facilities will count falls, falls with injury, and falls with serious injury. And here what we're seeing are the falls with serious injury, um, which include fractures, um, injuries to the head, uh, and those that that create open wounds that need uh, suturing or stitching. Mm -hmm. So does this then 
you know, show that people, the trend that of people wanting to stay in their own homes because of these sorts of things? Well, well I, I think that uh, there's a strong debate and people like to draw conclusions that if you're in residential aged care, you're more likely to fall, which isn't necessarily true. The, the staying in your own home, um, most people prefer. There is a need for some people who require um, 24-hour care to be in um, a care home. Mm-hmm. And the, the risk of a fall tends to be associated with the person's underlying condition and then the environment. So people could equally be falling at home with these injuries and we see uh, them presenting to hospital quite commonly. What we don't tend to do is we don't count them um, in the same way because um, there's a perception that if you're in a residential aged care facility, you ought to be kept safe and nothing should happen to you and we don't have that same belief in at home. It's, it's interesting, Joseph, because uh, one of our contributors to the program was suggesting when he heard that we were going to have you on the program was saying that um, basically the aged care centre is encouraging a sedentary lifestyle and that really, uh, they, they, therefore, that can expose people when they have to move around to the likelihood of injury, whereas in the home care situation, they're less sedentary and therefore probably a little bit more active and unlikely, less likely to fall. So there is... Um there is a basis that uh, to reduce your risk of falls, you need to be mobile. And, and sometimes people find that counterintuitive because if you're moving about, you're more likely to fall. But the things that reduce your risk of falls are maintaining good balance, and doing balance exercises mm. and remaining active and walking. So you've got the reflexes, muscle strength and um, joint stability to be able to move about. Sounds, so, sounds like I should be taking up Tai Chi. Yeah. So uh, well, well the, 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 there's good research evidence that Tai Chi reduces the risk of falls, and so if you've got the patience for it, you certainly should. So should the onus then be on the aged care facility to make sure that its residents have, you know, balanced classes or balanced... Um, you know, exercise. Exercise. Yeah. Well, 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 yes, and certainly um, many of them do in terms of encouraging people to participate. I think the challenge um, at any age is most people don't like exercise of any um, shape or form, and trying to get them to participate is always a challenge. I think as you're older, people who don't want to exercise have lots of reasons not so. But being able to maintain an active lifestyle with simply walking both indoors and outdoors, is really important and something that, you know, collectively we should be doing at home and in residential aged care facilities. Well, it's probably going to help the sector a little bit as well because the cost here to the, of these falls is mm. really getting quite prohibitive and, and growing quite alarmingly, really. Well, well the, the cost is, is the cost of hospital care and I think we need to be um, a little bit circumspect about how we look at that because I believe that older people should be able to get the same care as anyone else and so the the cost of the injuries is significant and so if we're able to reinvest that into programs that keep older people mobile and active then that's what we should be doing and I think the Accident Research Centre highlights that um, very clearly. There are also some other more nuanced uh, issues around the cost of care 
and some people would be asking questions around what is appropriate care for an older person with a major injury mm. and is this uh, a sign that uh, you know, life is coming to an end or um, so in terms of planning how to manage injuries and whether all the injuries need to be managed at hospital or whether the person might be uh, happier uh, or, or more content if they're able to get the care that they need in the facility is another uh, much broader topic that needs uh, a conversation and discussion around it. It's not an easy thing to resolve. And it's a very individual um, you know, exercise for each person, you know, presents with an individual case and an individual set of circumstances. That's certainly true. I think the, the important thing to remember here is that if an older person's fallen and broken their hip, that's not something that you can fix in an aged care facility. No, that's right. You have to go to hospital mm. to have that um, looked at and determine whether surgery is or isn't needed well, um, and what you want to do. Mm. Um, so I think that from that point of view, um, we've got to remember the, the logical approach or the humane approach to care. The, the question, the bigger question that's raised here is what are the main causes of injury and what is the underlying factor? And I think that the research team that did this work highlighted that there wasn't information about what was causing the fall and it's not clear what prevention strategies had been um, in place. And so that's a gap in our knowledge to, uh, about whether we feel this problem is solvable with a bit of effort or we've done all we can or we haven't done anything in fact. Mm -hmm. And so that information needs to be um, better reported uh, so interventions can be planned. Well, it sounds like uh, there's more work to be done, particularly for the federal and state governments, uh, Joseph, as they try and grapple with this issue of the um, growing older Australian society. Um, yes, it is. And I think it's important to remember that where we, your listeners, we get to vote in government and we need to hold them to account. So I think one of the problems that's occurred in aged care over the years is We've left the, the decision-making to government thinking that, that they will sort it all out when, in fact, it needs the community to be holding the government, both state and federal, of whatever uh, persuasion to account for delivering good and better care for older people. Yes. It's not going to happen if we do not um, lobby, advocate and check to see that what we want done is, in fact, being done. Well, I wonder whether we might be able to use the agency of a Royal Commission to do exactly that. Yes. Well, well I, I think this is... Um, I, I would strongly urge people to participate, to look at what's happening with the Royal Commission, and the time to be most alert is after the Commission concludes, because I, I'm not sure if your listeners are aware that there is no... Um, compulsion for any government to act on the recommendations of the Commission. So the Commission can occur and may well uncover a whole lot of things but there is no compulsion for any of those recommendations to be put in place and that's when the community really has to be exercising their voice about 
wanting the changes to occur following an investigation. Mm, and this is what the age stage is all about, so keeping our listeners informed. Professor Joseph Ibrahim of Monash University, thank you very much in, uh, indeed for taking some time out today, Joseph. We appreciate it very much indeed. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank Congratulations you, on your program. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Professor Joseph Ibrahim of Monash University, Health, Law and Ageing, thank you very much indeed for your time today on the age stage. And I think uh, by the look of the clock, it's just about time for us to get out of here. We are. It is about time. Gee, that hour went really quickly. So we better thank uh, Professor Joseph Ibrahim, of course, from Monash University. Also, of course, the uh, positive ageing advocate, Marcus Riley, a a very good friend of yours, Mm -hmm. and uh, Richard Grellman as well, who, of course, uh, raised all that money for Dementia Momentum up there with that big surfing event up at Bondi Beach in Sydney. We thank you very much indeed. And the regular, of course, Warren. Yes, Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia. And we'd like to thank our other sponsor, Australian Unity. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Brendan. And we'll see you next week. See you then. Bye.